Hello everyone, I'm Alexia Hudson-Ward, Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, and we are excited to share another great interview with you with an outstanding scholar. Danielle Terrazas-Williams is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Leeds. She earned a bachelor's degree in history from Cornell University and a PhD in history from Duke University. Dr. Williams is a historian of the African diaspora in colonial Latin America with an emphasis on women's history in Mexico. Most recently, her research focuses on the social and legal histories of African descended people in 16th and 17th century Mexico, exploring governance, slavery, family, and notions of class and status. Her current book, The Capital of Free Women, Race, Legitimacy, and Liberty in Colonial Mexico, weaves together several complex topics, including social capital and economics, and the extent to which an overarching socio-religious context guided the lives of free women of African descent who are highlighted in her book. Moreover, the book serves as a course correction to the historical erasure of free women of African descent in colonial Mexico by developing a unified narrative of these women's stories. Dr. Williams spent two decades combing the archives of Mexico, Spain, and Italy, examining material, ecclesiastical, and vice-regal documents dating from 1580 to 1730. Now to our conversation with Dr. Danielle Terrazas-Williams. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, you're very, very welcome. And would you share with our audience what led to your interest and in research on free Black women of African descent in colonial, what was referred to as colonial Spanish America and Mexico? Well, um, one of the things that sort of brought me to this um, specific history was really my more general interest in understanding the history of the African diaspora. Since I was a child, um, reading books on Black history was really crucial um, as far as my upbringing. Um, my great-grandmother, Annie Ruth Johnson, um, who was from Mississippi, had a wonderful collection of books. She was also a school teacher in the segregated South, as well as a business owner. And she um, was very much interested in ensuring that we had access to uh, books on Black history. And so they were in my grandmother's house when I was very young. And so reading those books really shaped my investment in understanding Black people's legacies. So it started from a, a quite a young age. And then when I was in college, there was a program, there still is a program at Cornell University called the College Scholars Program. And it allowed students to conduct research that was outside of the regular curriculum. And they were, students were allowed to sort of shape their own major in many ways. And so I was interested in doing research and it really allowed me to be in the archives at such an early age in my career. My degree actually says Afro-Mexican studies because we're actually able to Ooh. name our degrees as well. 
So, you know, that's sort of an undergraduate experience. And I never, even when I was doing research for it, I never thought, well, I'll become a historian. And really what I learned Mm -hmm. in going to the archives, being in Mexico, that this was a deeper story, a longer story, and a story that really needed to be told specifically about Black women's legacies in Mexico. So um, I'm definitely not the first um, who's ever thought about writing about the history of Black people in Mexico. Um, In fact, I was very much sort of brought in um, when I was conducting research in Mexico by amazing scholars such as Adrian Naveda, who was at the Universidad Veracruzana, where I was doing research, and she was at the Instituto de Investigaciones Históricas Sociales, so it's the the, uh, Institute of Social Historical Research, and I learned so much from her and others like Maria Elisa Velasquez and Yorina Flores, as well as Ursula Cambaledlo, um, about the importance of making an effort in demonstrating or, you know, highlighting with archival materials the history of Black people in Mexico. And so I really decided to spend my career uh, being in the archives and ensuring that when people say, no hay negros aquí, that there aren't Black people here, that I could say, well, these are the late 16th, 17th century records. These are the, the materials that we can say that these People lived here that these Black women um, were able to navigate these Spanish institutions. And so it's really a long, it's a long legacy of, of being invested in the history of the African diaspora, having the opportunity at a university to begin my life as a researcher, and then also having amazing scholars who paved the way uh, before me in Mexico um, that welcomed me in um, to also being a, a scholar of the African diaspora. Yeah, Daniel, thank you so much for that response. I I think there's a lot that you said that's so important, but one of the key points that I wanted to kind of further, you know, uplift and illuminate is this idea that, you know, you went into this study really seeking answers around your own culture, and then it later evolved into wanting to become a historian. And I think that for our faculty colleagues who are listening and our archives and our library and colleagues who are listening, that's an important point is that sometimes it's those touch points of self-discovery that can lead people into these career paths through which they then will illuminate historical records and evidence that that hasn't, you know, quite frankly, been at the force of so many great conversations. And I think that's really critical. One of the things that I realized when I was at Cornell University as an undergraduate is that one of my advisors said, well, you know, you're interested in doing something on the African diaspora. Why don't you focus on Mexico? You know the language, your family's from there. So my mother is Mexican, I'm Mexican-American. And it was one of those moments where I said, you know, I have some proximity. Um, I want to know more about Black women's history And I'm not seeing a lot written about um, free Black women. And so I want to know about Mexico's very long legacy with slavery, which dates back to 1519, in fact. Um, Enslaved Africans, as well as some free Africans, were with Hernán Cortés when he landed on the shores of what would become Mexico as he marched against the Aztec Empire. And so we know that for centuries, Black people have been part of this conversation. And I really wanted to 
um, delve into this larger field um, by thinking about the importance of centering Black women's experiences and this this experience that's racialized and gendered in very particular ways in the Spanish Spanish empire. And so it, it definitely tied back to my own family's history of both being Black and Mexican and being able to sort of bridge these two um, worlds in a project that the archive was there for. So I often got people who encountered me and said, well, you're not going to find much. And I often said as a retort, you know, well, if I find one, you know, if I find one example, if I find one woman's story, wouldn't that be interesting? So it was my way to sort of navigate around some of the gatekeepers who who may not have known about Black people's history in Mexico, or perhaps wasn't that interested in learning more, right? It was just something that, um, right? yeah, that they either had some uncomfortability around or um, were not knowledgeable about. And so it's one of the things I've also told my students that if they're really passionate about these research projects and you start encountering some of these roadblocks to, you know, find a way to navigate it ethically, right? I think it is important to approach um archives in a very ethical way, especially um, if you're an outsider. Like I wasn't born in Mexico. I'm not Afro-Mexican. I'm Black and Mexican. And that makes a difference. And so I wanted to respectfully approach these these sites, but I also remained diligent because I knew that there was a legacy there and that it would just take my patience and um, diligence to just stay with it. And so I'm very glad I did to be able to share these stories with so many people. I'm glad you did as well, because your book is outstanding. And this really leads to my second question, Danielle, is that I look at your book as a beautiful course correction, you know, to historical erasure of free women of African descent in colonial Mexico. You know, as you talked about it, there's so much gatekeeping. And then there's also having to have the resiliency to kind of break through those barriers. And it's interesting because you discuss piecing together these women's stories, you know, in a unified narrative as a really complicated task. And so you had to rely on what I think is one of the most interesting archival records to illuminate the stories of free Black women in the African diaspora. So would you discuss your archival research process and how it spanned across several countries? That was so key to in my mind, getting this right as best as I could, because each archive told its own story. So when I was starting this research life, I really started seeing these differences and trying to make sense of them and how to also make them coherent. And so, for example, when I was researching it at the RC, which is the Jesuit Central Archive in Rome, I was getting sort of um, this world building material of what central Veracruz looked like and felt like and Mm -hmm. was experienced. And the fact that while they weren't talking about Black women specifically in many areas, they were talking about the fact that the port where many Black women and men lived, owned homes, but also um, periodically traveled to as just visitors, that there were often epidemics, <laughs> that there were um, uh, um, fires that damaged the city, that there was flooding. And so trying to imagine this landscape that they were navigating was really important, but I couldn't get to their um, you know, the quotidian experiences that way. 
which was important. Um, the AGI, which is the, the, next, the Mexican National Archive, um, offered more about sort of the legal culture and um, some more about the, the overall landscape that I was trying to set up. But it was really the um, the uh, notarial archives, which is the heart of this uh, book, which allowed me to see, yes, the business lives in many ways of Black women, but these business documents revealed such dynamic trajectories of these Black women, sometimes very tragic trajectories of these Black women. I supplemented that with parish archival materials. So those records that focus on baptism and confirmation, marriage as well as death. And what I learned about many of these different stories, especially with the regional archives, is that for the notarial archives, most of the cases that involve Black women were related to their business transactions or other agreements with Spanish men and women. They mm. were often not about documenting, notarizing um, agreements and transactions with other Black people. There are some, but the vast majority of the story that you get from the notarial archives is about Black women doing business um, or holding to account uh, Spanish people. Now, if we turn to the Parish Archive, the Parish Archive offered a story that was much more about Black people engaging with other Black people. So whether that is marrying other Black people, whether they were free or enslaved, but also about Black people sort of showing up for other Black people as witnesses for marriages, for the baptism of people's children as serving as godparents. And so if I had only done the notarial history, I would have imagined that Black people were not engaging with one another. <laughs> but instead, <laughs> the parish right. archive told a very different story about family life, about who we consider close to our community, right? And so that, that's a very different, um, that's a very different narrative that gets offered with these multiple archives working in conversation with one another. And uh, other church and local archives were also helpful in offering some details. For example, in the final chapter of my book, one of the details I learn about the pirate attack that I highlight in the final chapter that took place in 1683, um, orchestrated by a Dutchman named Laurence de Graaf against the, the city of Veracruz, was that years after, um, or it doesn't actually give the date, um, this particular church piece of material that I found in the port of Veracruz says that they the church was had to be deconsecrated. Um, because Ooh. of they felt like wow. it was no longer a holy site. More than 4,000 people, it is noted in the archival materials, were held hostage um, in the church for wow. weeks. Um, and it is said that priests, men and women, children, and esclavos negros, enslaved Black people, were also held in there. Now, 4,000 perhaps sounds like if you are used to going to a large church, that yes, a church could comfortably fit about 4,000 people. But for the early modern period, this mid-colonial period, 4,000 people would have been nearly the entire town. Right. And very few yeah. buildings in the Americas could 
possibly accommodate 4,000 people comfortably. And so it was this only in this local church um, pamphlet that was actually circulated that offered this detail about it having to be deconsecrated and what that would mean about what their perception of the violence that took place there um, mm-hmm. is is pretty critical to understanding these stories. So again, it was a concert. Uh, it was a constellation of archives that came together to be able to offer this history about free Black women in Veracruz. Yeah, thank you for that. And for our listeners, um, Danielle, could you describe what you found in the notorical records and what exactly is a notorical record? When I read your book, I was like, oh my gosh, talk about turning over some stones. So could you share a little more about that, please? Absolutely. So a notarial record is one that is um, a document notarized um, that could is often business documents. So it's either the purchase and sale of something, and in the case of colonial Mexico, someone. Um, but it also allowed, um, an notary record could also be a power of attorney. So something called a poder, which essentially is saying that someone could represent you. It didn't have to be an attorney. You could give your poder, your power, to your husband, your wife, your child, um, a trusted friend. And so they're often considered the drier records of archival materials. But um, inspired by the work of Catherine Burns from Chapel Hill, uh, who I worked with when I was a graduate student at Duke University, it was a site where I found very lively um, tales. And so, for example, um, an interior record in which a mother transfers over her um, rights to her son to a property, which seems pretty straightforward, okay? So she is now bequeathing or she's offering even, you know, before her passing, um, offering her son this property um, as a gift. And then just a few short years later, he returns it, um, the same property to his mother. And it's noted in the archive, in, in this notarial record that for fear of, the son basically wasting the proper mismanaging the property. Um, there were, you know, he's returning the property to his mother. And you're like, ooh, what type of dynamics are at play here where um, this free <laughs> black woman who's raised a free black son is perhaps excited? Like we can imagine a world where she sees her son come of age and she's ready to pass on um, you know, their family's legacy, this property to her son. And then just, you know, you, you you go a couple of, you know, several more pages later and you find out that it has to be returned because she doesn't have faith in his management skills. Um, you know, again, underscoring perhaps anyone who um, has had businesses with family uh, know that not <laughs> everyone is going to be a business maven because they're born into um you know, they're born into a family that has uh, access to this type of capital. Um, Likewise, in the case um, of Polonia de Rivas, which is highlighted in a full chapter of the book, a free Black woman, she's described as a mulata libre, a free mulata, that we learn that her mother is um, was born in Guinea. Now, we don't know if it's actually Guinea or whether generally she's saying that her mother was born in West um, or West Central Africa, but it says that her mother was enslaved. She was born in Africa. Um, was forced to the Veracruz region. So this is a Black woman who's one generation removed from slavery. Mm -hmm. We also learn 
um, through her last will and testament, as well as other notarized materials, that she owns two of her brothers. Now, I say brothers, but the document actually says um, she describes these two men as los hijos de mi madre, which translates into the children of my mother. Oh. Now, you can just oh say, my. in the Spanish language, you can just refer to your siblings as hermanos. And it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a faster way to say my brothers, hermanos, just that. But to say, los hijos de mi madre, that, I think, speaks about that distance and perhaps that tension that is there. Um, and she does end up owning her brothers and, and a few other slaves that we know about. Um, because she uh, ends up giving them both their freedom, but after more than 20 years in her service. And so there are lots of ways in which the Natero Archive offers these confusing, tragic, and sometimes triumphant stories of this colonial past that we had very little sense of uh, before. And so I highlight the importance of these, again, oftentimes regarded as sort of dry documents. It's like, okay, you sold <laughs> this for this price. Um, but there's a lot of details that can be garnered. There are a lot of silences that you can work with and not just silences. Someone said, well, you know, how much of this, how much of these narratives that you're offering are based in archive material? And I said, you know, they are deeply entrenched in you know, very traditional archival practices of history and that this is not about imagining everything they went through. I imagine possibilities, but these are all about, um, those possibilities are from a world in which their archival materials and their trails are there. Um, so whether I can imagine whether maybe a mother had a falling out with her son and she just wanted the property back um, or that, um, you know, perhaps she just couldn't trust him or he couldn't trust himself, whatever it might have been. The fact of the matter is that she did have she did take the property back after a short amount of time. And that is usually not the case, um, especially when it comes to a gender dynamic of a mother taking back the property from a son. Um, that wouldn't be what would normally happen um, in the case of Spanish America. Uh, there are highly gendered ideas about who is fit to own and manage property. And while women were allowed to have property in Spanish America, which is important to note, unlike uh, in many pla other places, um, including in the U.S. South uh, or the, in the U.S. colonies, um, that it is critical to understand that there's some tension there that we can't see, uh, but we can still base our conclusions within um, this realm of possibilities. So I, again, was sort of taken in by the Natarial Archive many moons ago through the help of the brilliant work of Catherine Burns. And it's allowed me to move beyond just saying that they were there, but also looking at sort of intimate family details and tensions and successes and places where there might have been great heartache and, um, and great sacrifice. And I think that's important to share too. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And also great complexity, right? Yeah. Cause as I was listening to you, you know, it occurred to me that this without a doubt 
is one of the more complex meta research design processes to which then leads, you know, led to your great book that I've heard in many, many years. And, you know, and knowing that there's still a lot of query, I don't want to say controversy, but there's query around the extent to which research related to free Black women and particularly any kind of like pre-1865 African diasporian study. So let me just go there, right? It's not qualitative. It's not quantitative. You know, like you hear this nonsense, right, constantly, right? And so I think it would be helpful. Well, first of all, I know you're going to make the hearts of all of my colleagues who are archivists just sick, right? But I also know that there are some people who are in some real kind of squabbles whether they're in PhD programs currently, Danielle, or they're actually in pursuit of some materials that are kind of similar to some of the work that you're doing, and they're getting swatted back saying, this doesn't fit within the traditional kind of four corners research structure that the Westernized Academy, you know, elevates as central or important. So can you talk about how you address, if any, because the book is so great, I can't imagine, but if you did come across any of those kinds of queries or barriers around the extent to which this fits within the traditional model of research, how did you address it? And, and then if you didn't, could you give some advice to others who may be encountering some of those challenges? And that's such a great question because it can be so, I'm sure, paralyzing for junior scholars who are coming into the field, who are perhaps organizing their research trips for this summer, um, who are embarking on year-long fellowships, perhaps, to be in archival sites. And it really is about a resiliency that I was able to build up. And it had a lot to do with the fact that I was able to conduct research at such an early stage um, as a junior scholar. You know, I, I was, I think, probably 19 or 20 when I first went to Mexico to do archival work. Um, and it really also was to the credit of, for generations, a not as well known, but really critical part of uh, Mexican advocacy work that was being done about the African descended root of Mexico's history. And so, um, for example, Marilla Savalescas at INA, which is the Instituto Nacional de Antropología y Historia, the National Institute of Anthropology and History, her and her team have been working so hard for generations at this point, you know, to have small seminars to bring people into the fold, to go out to the communities, to talk to be about to talk to people about the history of Black people in Mexico. That this is not new. Um, I think that this these tensions around discussing Black people in Mexico has flared up in the last few years, specifically in Mexico, due to questions of immigration. And so, for example, you know, what we're real, what we're, we're seeing is that there are more migrants who are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border to then cross, try to attempt to cross into the U.S., who are either from the Caribbean or from Africa as well as from other parts of Latin America with more predominantly Black populations. And so there is this pushback to say that Blackness is not 
part of Mexico's like it's not Mexican. And that's just so far from the truth because if Spanishness is Mexican from 1519, well, certainly blackness who was, you know, blackness uh, as represented through the both free and enslaved people who were there it is certainly part of the same conversation if both are landing right. at the same time, not in the same conditions and not for the same reasons. But we cannot, you know, I think that, again, I think that there's been some political pushback. And I think also people are committed to this nationalistic narrative that there's a saying that todos somos mestizos, todos somos mexicanos, that you know, we're all Mexican or most of us are mestizo, mixed race, indigenous and Spanish. And to disrupt that national narrative is really unsettling for people, um, which is why the work of INA, the Instituto, it's a, it's a national institute that has been doing wonderful work about campaigning to get people to, one, become aware of it, but also to encourage historically Black populations in Mexico that they should also say, hey, we're a historically Black population, <laughs> that we've been here for generations, that we're not immigrants. Um, and it's important to also acknowledge, you know, the, you know, the importance of what, you know, immigration does for countries in really important ways, but to also um, say that that's not the story for everyone who is in Mexico and is of African descent. Um, it's just not. And I remember when I was living in Mexico and there were, I would encounter people who say, would say, oh, um, yeah, I know you're working on Black people in Mexico, but they're just Cubans who came over in the 20th century or the late 19th century. And I said, well, my documents look at the late 16th century. And there are other people who do work earlier who are finding documentation of Black people in the early 1500s, right? And so that's not what the focus is of the book, but I've also looked at these documents and said, it's very clear that the Spanish government knows that there are Black people in Mexico. It is very clear that the Viceroy and the Crown, as well as the Catholic Church, are thinking about the fact that there are Black people in Mexico and how do we attend to them in both a religious sense, but also how can we mobilize their labor and in which industries? So why are we willing to deny this if all of these, it's not Black people are saying, look, we were here. I mean, their, their documents offer that narrative. But Crown officials in official documentation are acknowledging their presence, are talking about Black people, are worrying about Black people, um, about the threat of Black people, about how Black people can be you know, forced into mines or sugar plantations. And so this is nothing that you know we should be shocked by or disoriented by um, because there is a strong archival trail. This is not about hoping that there are Black people everywhere. This is about establishing <laughs> with very clear <laughs> archival evidence that these legacies exist. And I will also say to the archival point, the archivists in Mexico are really doing God's work. Because with very small budgets, often understaffed, and often under threat of things like natural disasters, they are able to keep these documents safe, that they have, uh, some have finding, um, uh, finding guides for them. Sometimes they, some areas, small, you know, small um, local archives don't have those resources. And I remember being walked to a room in Córdoba, 
am in, it's a small town in, um, it was a small town. It's a, it's a larger town now in, in Veracruz. And they just opened a door and there was just paper sort of everywhere and kind of in boxes. And, but these are the people who are holding on as best as they can, who are not as well resourced as other archives are um, in the US or Europe or any, you know, many other places. And so the fact that they're able to ensure that someone like me can walk in and do this type of work is really incredible, knowing what they are faced with. So um, all, all credit to archivists and librarians. I talk about that in the <laughs> the acknowledgments of my book, thank goodness for them, because it's really precarious work. Um, I know it's often precarious work, but the conditions that they work under are really tough in Mexico. And so um, I'm so grateful for their dedication. It really is. Um, it has to be um, just in their spirits to to love the work that they do, because there's just no other way, just no other way they do it. And I imagine that they are grateful for your acknowledgement as I was when I read that. I was like, oh, thank you. You know, so um, it is it is with appreciation that you elevate the work of the hidden, um, not just in the context of the records, but those who are behind the scenes helping, you know, with the labor of illuminating the invisible as well. You know, and as I was thinking about something you were saying, you know, and I'm reflecting on more than 500 years of history, right? Of African presence in, you know, colonial Spanish America, colonial Mexico, and how people are so interested in like, what do you mean Black people was there? I was like, um, literally there's a record that's 500 plus, almost 600 years old. Like, yeah, it's a thing. You know, you just kind of have to spend some time with it. But what I find compelling is how you've woven together these really complex topics within the scope of that history. So, of course, you know, you raise race, but then there's also this issue of legitimacy and these women owning businesses, right? Liberty, what it meant to be a free woman who was a business owner to have some degree of wealth and social capital, economics. And what's fascinating, I find, about your area of study is how there is an impact of an overarching what I would describe as a socio-religious context, you know, with all of these pieces and specifically, you know, highlighted within your book. And so would you discuss how the socio-religious context informs or places an imprint on the subjects and the topics that you've explored? I think that's so important. I mean, I think that free Black women in Central Veracruz were acutely aware of socio-religious demands, um, perhaps especially because they were Black women um, in a zone that still depended on slavery and that was an area that still had maroons, so escaped slaves, right? Those who liberated themselves and uh, began lives, um, often smaller communities, but a few larger ones in the central Veracruz um, area. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that I found in putting together their lives was that there seemed to be a great sense of what I called, you know, the social legitimacy um, and, and not honor. So what honor is in, in the Spanish American world was, you know, we're often tied to questions of, yes, 
class, but also delineated by race, as well as um, by one's sort of general social standing, not necessarily tied to um, class. But it was importantly an option that was not available for Black women. So even when Black women are saying that they're honorable, um, and perhaps even using those terms, the, the Black women I focus on do not use the term honor. But even in other um, areas of the historiography that where Black women are saying, you know, we're honorable too, they're excluded by virtue of the fact that they don't have this thing called limpieza de sangre, which is the purity of one's blood. So because mm. they are Black women, mm -hmm. they, don't, they can never be truly honorable in, in, in Spanish America. But legitimacy is something else. And mm -hmm. legitimacy is more than just reputation. Um, legitimacy could be found in multiple ways. It could be your economic reputation. Um, it could also be the fact that you could be married legitimately, that your children would be seen as hijos legitimos, which is a term in uh, Spanish America, legitimate children, as compared to those who are considered out of wedlock, which were noted as hijos naturales, or natural children. And so the difference mm. is that with honor, one could lose one's honor by an act of indiscretion, by a misstep in protocol, um, by an unplanned pregnancy, by, um, you know, a drunken night out that ended with a duel could, could dishonor an entire family. Legitimacy is not the same thing. And I think Black women knew that they didn't, they couldn't truly have access to this Iberian ideal of honor. Instead, legitimacy mm -hmm. is about, again, ideas of perhaps economic reputation, but also socio-religious expectations that they could have access to. Um, one of the things I found significant in the quantitative research that I was doing was that there was a substantive number of Black people who were legitimately born who were marrying other Black people who were also legitimately born. And so there's something about this demographic of people saying, hey, I think that like I want to unite with other legitimately born Black people. So that's one thing, but it's also... For those who did not decide to marry within the um, the dictates of the Catholic Church, that they were still willing to offer some form of legitimacy to their children. So they're not going to be considered hijos uh, legitimos. They're going to be considered hijos naturales. So they don't have access to that at-birth legitimacy. But they still ensure that their children were baptized and confirmed. And that is a form of religious legitimacy as being officially mm -hmm. part of the Catholic church. So whether your mm -hmm. parents are born, uh, you're, you were born to um, legitimately married parents, someone could then access a form of religious legitimacy through mm. their baptism and confirmation records. So that is different when you can literally walk around with legitimacy in your hand, <laughs> whether you were born legitimate, right. whether you were married legitimately, whether you uh, were confirmed and baptized, that's a different form. And it's a bit more stable form of what I called as, you know, I've referred to it as part of this capital that they mobilized. Um, and I think that one of the things that they understood, these Black women, is that um, honor was not on the table. Legitimacy through their reputations was something that they could manage, but that they also could define legitimacy as they saw fit. So there were black women um, who had, you know, who had 
um, partners who were not married. And what I realized is that their children are being noted as illegitimate, right? As natural children, but they're still being raised in two parent households. Right. <laughs> so yeah, they're not married, but you know, I think these women said, well, does it matter? Because maybe they didn't, you know, they weren't trying to be legitimate in that way, but they offered their ch children legitimacy through other avenues. But these are choices, right? And so I think it was important to course correct on that narrative of illegitimacy when, is it illegitimate if both parents are still there? Is there, they baptize their child? You, people normally baptize their child pretty early on, sometimes weeks, maybe even up to a year or two of having the child. But confirmation comes years later. So it, the confirmation records say that, oh, this is an illegitimate child, but the father's still around. They've just decided that this is, this is enough for them, that this type of family works for them. And I think Black women were redefining what legitimate was. And I think that's really significant to consider. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wonder, was this an economic strategy, right? So you know, you married a man and then the man becomes the owner of your assets, right? So I can be in a relationship with you, but what I build is mine, right? So it's kind of like, no, I don't know if I necessarily under a patriarchal society want you to be able to have any dominion or ownership over that which I've acquired or built, right? We see these types of strategies with women who were widowed young. And so you have young women who have, are, are legitimate because, right, they've, they've married officially, but they've decided not to remarry. <laughs> and so they're <laughs> able to mobilize that status of widow to have the social legitimacy sort of on the street, but also be able to have greater control over their own destinies as far as their economic um, capital, as well as perhaps um, ensure that no outsider, another husband, for example, might want to deprive her children with her first husband. Um, and so you can imagine lots of different reasons why people did not necessarily want to be married. What we see in the what becomes the U.S. Southwest in the work of Ramon Gutierrez amongst indigenous groups is that priests would go into these indigenous communities and say, um, you're living in sin, you should be married. And the response <laughs> back was, you know, this is sort of a scam. We're not paying for your marriage fees. You know, we're, we're, we're married in our own way. We have relationships in our own way. And so it was, you know, you could call them, oh, they don't believe in marriage or legitimacy. No, they believe in the relationships that they fostered. They believe in the families that they have defined. And I think that's important to see that. Um, amongst Black women. And I think with regard to how they navigated this socio-religious landscape, they had access to some really interesting ways to assert how they define themselves. Right. Um, a very sort of tragic case that I highlight in the book is of a young girl who's only 12, who's sick. And she notes that she, before the notary public, that she doesn't have any wealth, but she's asking her mother to be her executor. And she says her only wish is that if God does not heal her body, that she be buried in the cemetery of San Francisco, which was a cemetery that often Spanish elites were buried in. Wow. So this is a young girl who is not well. 
who is thinking about her eternal resting place. And while she has no money, she says that, right? She has no other assets. She still has a sense of herself as a Catholic. She has a sense Mm. of herself of what she deserves in this socio-religious ecosystem that she dared to say, I have actually no money, but if I, if I am to pass, then I want my, I want to be respected like other Catholics have a right to be respected. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so powerful to think mm-hmm. of a young mm-hmm. girl at that age, again, perhaps a death story. I actually don't ever find her death record, um, so I don't know whether she passes. In my mind, I like to think that since I didn't find a death record, perhaps she lived to be an adult and, and thrived in many other ways, but that she had the sense of going to a notary public, an institution that Spaniards respected and invested in and said, here is where I'm able to document and have archived my last wishes and my expectation. Now, whether they actually do or not, my expectation of my place in society is that I can ask for it. Mm-hmm. And that was so striking to me to think about someone that young. I know that, you know, during the colonial period, people, our ages, our sense of ages are different, but I still think of a 12 year old little girl trying to make sense of her circumstances um, in that way and say, you know, I may have nothing, but I do have membership to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for telling her story that, you know, for so many centuries had been hidden. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't hear about, you know, young people's agency. And and I, I think in the same way that you do, like, yes, you know, we don't think of young people in the colonial period as the same age as 12 now, right? But what a remarkable and heroic thing to do, you know, is to say that in this moment, this is where I want to be placed because I deserve to be placed there. It's just, it's incredible. It is absolutely an incredible story. Thank you for bringing that to us. It's really great. So my last question to you is what's next? What's next on on the docket in terms of a new book or some other research that you're working on? I'm very much looking forward to two projects that I'm working on at the moment. The first is a book-length project on the history of Jesuits in colonial Mexico and thinking about the ways in which they're attending to this burgeoning demographic of both free and enslaved Black people. Mm. So Jesuits arrived to Mexico in 1572, and it's around the same time that Spain becomes more invested in the transatlantic slave trade as they become a unified crown with Portugal in 1580. And so the Spanish crowns are then able to mobilize these trade networks that have been long established by the Portuguese to forcibly transport hundreds of thousands of people to the Spanish-American colonies. So at the same time, this dynamic global order is coming into the Provincia Mexicana that they established, the Mexican province, and are there to uh, initially attend to the educational needs of elites, um, Spanish elites, as well as the large demographic of indigenous people. But then as the demographics begin to change because of Spain's investment in the slave trade, we see them turn their attention to Black people. And it's not just about local conditions. It's about the head of the Society of Jesus in Rome stating to his proxies, 
in Mexico, they need to pay attention to black people. They mm. need to figure out strategies, right? They need to be mindful of this demographic. And so I'm really curious about thinking about this earlier period of the Society of Jesus and their engagement with Black people as these landscapes are transforming very quickly at the end of the 16th century. And so the project on Jesuits is something I'll be working on this summer at the Jesuit Archive in Rome. So I look forward to conducting more archival research and getting that project well underway. The second project is focuses on free Black women and entrepreneurs. And so while I was writing the first book, I was finding really great stories of Black women who were involved in business ownership and land ownership. And so this second project, which I think is probably, I want to just be article length for the moment and hopefully find more materials to engage with, is thinking about um, some other cases that I found about Black women who own businesses and what it meant to be such a visible presence on the social and economic landscape, right? Yeah. As Black women who were owning businesses like Inns, right? Being an inn owner means that you see people from all walks of life, that people, when they come into your town, if someone says, where should I, uh, where can I get a night's sleep and, you know, a hot meal that you're being directed to a Black woman's establishment really means something. And mm. these are some ideas that I played with in one of the chapters in the first book, The Capital of Free Women, but that I think that there's room to expand upon as I've really ruminated on their lives and these experiences. And and what I can add more to by having this other article. So two projects that I'm working on right now and juggling them, but I'm looking forward to uh, moving them forward and seeing them to completion to really continue to add to the depth of Afro-Mexican studies. Excellent. And thank you. Looking forward to both of those projects. Um, I will be curious at another time to hear about the juggling because that has to be amazing. Um, but many thanks for your time and what a delightful conversation. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you so much, Alexia. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to our interview with Dr. Danielle Terrazas Williams. Sign up to receive our newsletter, follow us on social media and subscribe to our podcasts that are available on most podcasting platforms. Be well. Yeah. Mm-hmm.